morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Wednesday. We've got a hugely consequential show today. Lots of big news to get into. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. I cannot wait to dig in. All right, take it away. Well, first up, Tucker is back. He announced new plans to have a kind of Elon Musk Twitter crossover show. Let's take a look. After more than 30 years in the middle of it, we could tell you stories. The best you can hope for in the news business at this point is the freedom to tell the fullest truth that you can. But there are always limits. And you know that if you bump up against those limits often enough, you will be fired for it. That's not a guess, it's guaranteed. Every person who works in English language media understands that. The rule of what you can't say defines everything. It's filthy, really, and it's utterly corrupting. You can't have a free society if people aren't allowed to say what they think is true. Speech is the fundamental prerequisite for democracy. That's why it's enshrined in the first of our constitutional amendments. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. And yet, for the most part, the news that you see analyzed on Twitter comes from media organizations that are themselves thinly disguised propaganda outlets. You see it on cable news. You talk about it on Twitter. The result may feel like a debate, but actually the gatekeepers are still in charge. We think that's a bad system. We know exactly how it works, and we're sick of it. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We'll be bringing some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Now, according to new reporting in Axios, Carlson's lawyers recently penned a letter to Fox accusing the company of fraud and breach of contract and demanding a host of documents that could precede legal action. Sources say Carlson was told by a Fox board member that he was ousted as part of Dominion settlement and that Carlson intends to subpoena Fox communications chief Irina Briganti's cell records. As of, the, as of this taping, Carlson's video has 18.2 million views on Twitter which seems to suggest that maybe deplatforming doesn't always work. Uh, AOC had, you know, hailed the deplatforming of Tucker Carlson and suggested, like, that would be the end of your likelihood of interacting with him, uh, which was obviously very, very, very premature. Tucker yeah. fully intends to remain part of the discourse. So uh, we're going to talk about him, Elon Musk, Twitter, et cetera, in, in a minute. But first, his actual dispute with Fox. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So he is alleging breach of contract uh, for a variety of reasons. He says that, so his claim is that his, uh, he, he was, he's out as a result of the Dominion lawsuit. Um, Fox, by the way, says that's not true. And Dominion, by the way, says that's not true. They've released a statement saying that was not part of their settlement. Uh, he also believes Fox uh, made him look bad. He, he called out Murdoch specifically, mm. violated the contract by making him look bad, in it, which was part of their ag agreement that they would not, in the course of the lawsuit, do things, settle in a way that would be damaging to his own reputation. Mm -hmm. They clearly did that. That's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. So he, so he's saying they broke the contract first. Yeah, so he now can he can post on Twitter. He can do what he wants because they have terminated the contract. Yeah, and, and specifically, he's saying that because he was fired 
as a consequence of the Dominion settlement, that that reflects wrongdoing on his part. That if, you know, if he were mm -hmm. fired for other reasons, then he can be fired for other reasons. But because he says that Fox fired him specifically as a consequence of the Dominion lawsuit, that, that the implication is that he did something wrong. And so they, the, the, the sum total, the, the consequences of this, if he were to be successful, is that he could continue to get the money that is remaining on his contract, which isn't up until uh, January of 2025, at the same time that he continues to do news, do reporting, do journalism, or what have you, on other outlets, right. which he'd be precluded from doing in the alternative. Yeah, that's. I think that's a little bit unclear at this moment. I saw some reporting suggesting that he was essentially going to walk and mm -hmm. not try to receive the money. But you're right that that he's wants to have this legal dispute with Vox about the state of the contract. The state of the contract would suggest he's trying to re still collect what could be, I think, about somewhere between twenty and thirty million dollars based on what he's paid per year. Mm -hmm. So, which obviously he doesn't need the money, but that's, of course, that's a lot of money. Like, no one says, eh, I don't need $30 million. If you can get it, you can get it. He, he can, of course, also make, you know, millions on whatever platform he's choosing to engage in. It, it seems like it's going to be Twitter. But, uh, but, but the fight, he wants to subpoena communications involving that, that Fox official, mm -hmm. Irina Briganti, who's uh, the head of Fox Media and is uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes um, entity at Fox. Um, Megyn Kelly has had some unkind words for that uh, person with respect to her own departure from Fox. So I, I think Tucker wants to find out or, or wants the public to find out whether the leaks have been orchestrated, um, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, to the extent he was undone by his own internal communications with, like, with other people at Fox, with his producer, Etc. Um, maybe now this is like a little bit of payback, honestly. Yeah, I mean, like, well, here, well, what, what were other people say? You think what I said was embarrassing? Here's what other people were saying. Sure. I mean, it does feel as though the threat of embarrassing Fox is more significant than the possibility of him demonstrating that Fox has breached their contract. It's first we have to know more about what these alleged material representations that were made to him were, and we have to find out if he can actually prove that some condition of the settlement with Dominion actually was firing Tucker Carlson. Um, and I'm sure that his um, document discovery efforts here are aimed at finding exactly that out. It's not clear to me, maybe you know more about the role Irina would be playing in any of that, what, if anything, in her communications would help him prove his legal case, or if, in the alternative, this is really about just exploding it all up and having the information available that would make it very mm -hmm. embarrassing for Fox News to continue to hold on to their audience share. Sure. I, he clearly wants to make this as painful, I think, for Fox mm -hmm. as possible. You know, this, his sudden firing and ouster was dropped on him, what, two weeks ago? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's, you know, if they thought he was going to go quietly into that good night, I guess that was a very wrong bet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I also do think there's an interesting question about the exposure uh, Tucker will get on Twitter versus the mainstream media. I do think it was very uh, premature and hubristic for anyone to presume that someone as big as Tucker Carlson could be quote unquote deplatforming. We went deplatformed rather. We went the same argument with um, Joe Rogan a couple of years ago when there was this question of, uh, should Spotify offer him a deal? No, Spotify should deplatform him. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan's someone who's independently built up the largest podcast following, one of the largest media followings, period, 
in the world. The idea that that following is reliant, ever was reliant, or would be reliant on being hosted by a company like Spotify sort of misses the point. If you think the institution, the corporation, shouldn't get by, behind someone for various ideological reasons, you're allowed to have that as your opinion. But this whole notion of deplatforming has gotten so skewed over the last few years. It used to mean that someone who otherwise wouldn't have an audience is being given an audience by usually mainstream cable media shows. This is what happened, I would argue, with Donald Trump in 2015-2016, when shows like uh, or stations like MSNBC and CNN chose to air empty podiums and obsessively cover Donald Trump, and in fact, fire reporters who didn't want to talk about Donald Trump. Melissa Harris-Perry very famously was let go from MSNBC, in part because she wanted to cover other kinds of news in the lead-up to the 2016 election, and they were like, no, Trump is good for ratings, Trump all the time. That's platforming. Mm -hmm. that, is, that, is it, that is exposing an audience that otherwise wouldn't be putting eyes on a figure to that figure disproportionately. But someone who already has one of the biggest audiences in cable media, it's a nonsensical argument. So the question is, are you now just creating a world where Tucker used to be in the fence, you know, fenced in by Fox, have some kind of boundaries on him, boundaries which he's now saying in this video he's happy to take off. And yeah, that's exactly on. what he's saying And in now this he's video. out here without an editor. Right. Is that really a better world? Well, from the liberal perspective, from a liberal perspective, almost no, abs certainly not. Um, it might act genuinely be a better arrangement for you know the, from the standpoint of addressing controversial subjects or you know things the the regime doesn't want to talk about, particularly with respect to foreign policy. We're we're now hearing I, it's still kind of operating the level of rumors, the discomfort that certain you know Republican leaders of a of a more old school neocon bent had with his hour on Fox News specifically because he was charting such a drastically different course on Ukraine and et cetera. So, you know, and it's also worth noting that Tucker Carlson's chief writer, uh, Blake Neff, was very famously fired some years ago because of bigoted statements that he was making on certain other online forums. Is that the kind of decision? Would, would, would Tucker Carlson's bigoted head writer be let go in a world where Fox wasn't putting that kind of pressure on. You know, so it's not just—I know that there is a lot of interest in Tucker Carlson's kind of foreign policy takes and whether or not there was tension at Fox around those takes and whether or not he's free to be, you know, continue criticizing the war in Ukraine and what have you. But there also is concern that some of his domestic policy, race takes, um, et cetera, uh, also won't have any constraint on them in a way that— might be <laughs> harmful to various communities that have become targets of them, or frankly, might be distasteful to his audience, who also isn't that into some of the repl great replacement theory and other kinds of fringe rhetoric that have now, in most recent history, been connected to some of these mass shooters and the like. Well, we're going to talk more about Tucker's future on Twitter in a minute. More rising right after this. Just hours after Tucker Carlson announced his new show on Twitter, the site's CEO, Elon Musk, made clear that there is no deal in place and urged people from both sides of the political spectrum to join the platform. He even tweet replied to Don Lemon's post announcing his firing from CNN, saying, quote, have you considered doing your show on this platform? Maybe worth a try. Audience is much bigger. These comments from Musk might be an effort to keep Twitter from being seen as a solely right-wing platform. The announcement has caused liberals to sound the alarm that Musk is leading Twitter rightward 
and not being able to curb Carlson's rhetoric could be a problem. Media Matters senior fellow Matthew Gertz noted that Twitter's already weary advertisers are going to love paying to have their brand associated with Tucker Carlson. New York Congresswoman AOC tweeted, Twitter brought to you by MyPillow and only MyPillow. <laughs> the New York Times' Taylor Lorenz said, this makes it even more clear what sort of ideology Musk is pushing. And finally, here's former CNN anchor Brian Stelter on MSNBC. Okay, well, listen, Twitter was already under fire from misinformation, disinformation, all-out lies, anti-Semitism, right. racism, before Elon Musk took over, and now it's gotten kind of crazy, right? Seemingly unmoored, uh, if you will. Will anybody be able to police what Carlson says... Mm. Or is this the point? It's just a free-for-all. I think this is the point. It is a free-for-all. It's what Elon Musk wants to provide. This move by Tucker may cement the idea of Twitter as a right-wing website. Police what he says? Like, it's not illegal to speak. It's a social media platform. You can speak there, too. Anyone else can. I find this whole, you know, misinformation policing framing just very like unhealthy for our for our society for for democracy itself um, the fear they have is that right is that Tucker Carlson or anyone else can speak without guardrails being set up to stop people from hearing information that isn't true that's just not the way that's just not the way the world works that's not the way our country works people have broad free speech rights and and you can still criticize him like he's going to be subjected to all the same you know, here's what the clipping, their lives are going to get easier. The Media Matters crowd, the people who just clip Tucker segments uh, from his show on Fox and then post them on Twitter and other places on social media saying, look at the horrible lies he's peddling. Mm -hmm. They don't even have to switch platforms now. It'll all be in the same place. He might get um, community noted. <laughs> yeah, well, and community notes publicly is something Elon is very, seems very bullish on. He keeps bringing it up as a positive thing. Um, so far, I... I, too, find it to be a very useful tool. I think it's the healthiest of the fact-checking options. Remember, Facebook will blur entire posts based on things, ideological activists, including what we found out from what uh, Michael Schellenberger told us when we interviewed him a few weeks ago, like a Ukrainian government agency being able to blur uh, messaging that is a, a little bit more uh, neutral or fair to the Russian Yeah, and I found out real-time while we were interviewing him that if I went to try to post the Hirsch article, I got a warning from Facebook saying, do you really want to do this? Your content might be throttled if you post yeah. articles like this, you post content like this. That's so, what they want. That's the kind of, and when they're saying there, they want uh, that level of policing, and Twitter doesn't well, do it. Twitter, I don't think that we can say what they want. I think that that is a problem. Many people yeah. have advocated for that sort of thing. But let me ask you this. Is there a difference between censorship and edit editorial oversight um, that many of us in the field of journalism appreciate as something that makes our writing better, that sharpens our focus. We were just making some jokes about the New York Times piece yesterday uh, about Elizabeth Holmes and how it could have used a firmer editorial hand as she seemed completely mm -hmm. taken in by the fraud of this very famous fraudster. And in the previous blog, I was talking to you about how you know it seemed that perhaps Tucker's presence at Fox News and Fox News' exposure is part of why his notoriously bigoted head writer was eventually let go from his show. Blake Neff, he had uh, said he wouldn't get medical care from an Asian doctor, was using homophobic slurs. Um, you know, th those kinds of things that were really uncontroversially a problem and not seen by most people as additive to Tucker Carlson's show. Would someone like that be forced out? Um, if not for being part of an institution like Fox News. And maybe you don't think that's a problem, but I think a lot of people might 
ask whether or not Tucker was improved, like many journalists are improved, by having some kind of pushback and kind of Socratic dynamic with an editor. Well, look, I think a good editor is a good thing. I, you know, I write for a magazine, additionally to um, producing video content for us, and I have a great team of editors who help improve my writing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the concern is that there can be, you know, too much gatekeeping if if you don't get along with your editors or they're trying to stop you from saying what you think is important. This is something that, you know, Glenn Greenwald ran up against at The Intercept, ended up going independent because he felt w that he was excessively held back from being able to really unleash on what he thought were pernicious influences in the Democratic well, Party and law enforcement. specifically, Glenn left The Intercept because he wanted to write an, an article about the Hunter Biden laptop story. Right. And the editors there thought it was, they bought into the narrative, it seems, that it wasn't newsworthy, that it wasn't um, verifiable, uh, that it was contributing to election-era disinformation. And Glenn really was right about that and won that fight. There is a broader question, though, about whether or not a bad editorial decision cancels out all of the positive editorial decisions and whether or not there's will, some middle ground. So I will found. tell you, I will predict for you right now the direction this conversation is going to move. Because here is the fundamental difference between Tucker being on Fox News and Tucker being on Twitter as the platform where his content is hosted. The difference is Section 230. The difference is the liability protection. So when if Tucker says something defamatory on Fox News, you can sue him and you can sue Fox News. When he is he, he's posting his content directly to Twitter. He says something defamatory. You can sue him. You cannot sue Elon Musk. You can't sue the platform. That's because internet platforms have, uh, have a much greater uh, uh, protection from lawsuits. Gen genuinely, uh, this was like uncontroversial until recent times that this yeah. was a good thing. This is what allows us all to post it is well. That, is that going to help Tucker, though? Because look what happened to Alex Jones. It's fine for Elon. Elon's not getting sued. But what happens when the content creator, someone like Alex Jones, has to pay millions of dollars no, no, no. in a lawsuit because he was sued for lying about no, 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 these Sandy Hook victims? Sure, but you're missing my point. What's going to happen is people like all those people we just played in those uh, those clips um, are going to call to remove are going to call for the end no, of I, section 230. I, 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 get to that stop point. I get that point. But this is the, the point I'm making is that That's sometimes gonna... editors protect you from yourself and that and it, you Well know, sure, I don't disagree with that. That there's a yeah. world in where in which Tucker Carlson might have to find some substitute for what Fox News was doing to protect him from exactly that kind of liability to exposure now that it's not already built into his platform. Sure. I, I think so in recent years, the right has been the side crusading to get rid of Section 230 because uh, out of a general spite toward big tech. Um, although also Democrats have also, like so many elected officials have all agreed that like getting rid of Section 230 would be a good thing. I think this is insane and would like break social media as yeah. we know it and not in a way that benefits free speech, would not benefit us in our role as hosts of this show, would be just like a huge, huge yeah. mess. Uh, this is going to switch and now and now your, your Democratic misinfo obsessed speech policing people are going to be it's going to become more partisan it's going to be yeah. a, a thing exclusively to them where right now you have like a broad agreement like Josh Hawley wants to get rid of it Ted Cruz wants to get rid of it and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and like oh, the the populists on all sides right mm. i bet this is going to become a more right versus right versus liberals thing as uh, as Tucker becomes you know, the main yeah, interesting. show on Twitter. Well, one other thing I just really wanted to engage with, uh, we played Tucker's, Tucker's announcement speech in the earlier clip, and we didn't talk about it then, but he characterizes Twitter as the last remaining free speech platform. And I have some questions about that. One, because it's not clear to me 
what difference, there's difference there is between something like Twitter and something like YouTube in terms of the fact that it's a algorithmically based kind of a free for all. There are some broad guide, guide rails, but there is a lot of inconsistency there. Elon Musk. Are you came describing in, Twitter or YouTube? Both. Right now? Yeah, yeah. Both. Yeah. That, that <laughs> like Elon that's Musk, very characteristic exactly. of both so, of them. This is what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> is Twitter really unique as a video hosting platform in terms of free speech? When Elon Musk came in saying that he was going to resolve some of the inconsistencies in terms of um, content and algorithmic content and the choices that were made to deplatform people or to suppress them otherwise on the site, it doesn't seem like those consistencies have been worked out. He's been very capricious in his choice to let some people back on and take people back off based on his personal feelings. He famously censored the journalists who were reporting on the Elon Jets account. Um, he uh, famously ended the Twitter files because of a personal dispute with um, uh, Matt Taibbi. He, th he throttled uh, temporarily people's ability to use put Mastodon links in their tweets because he didn't want to compete with other kinds of apps. Um, you know, he let Barry Weiss go from the Twitter files the second she offered any kind of criticism of his choice to censor journalists over the Elon Musk account, and on and on and on. You know, what do you make of this branding exercise of, of Twitter as free speech? And is what Elon Musk is really paying for here in part to get high profile people like Tucker Carlson to continue to perpetuate the idea that Twitter is really different from some of these other sites when he has failed to fix the problems we all hoped he well, would We don't fix. know he's, that he's paying Tucker at all. He, he's suggested that he's not. You think that Tucker is going to not be compensated for a show on Twitter in any way? I don't know what his how he plans to monetize this, but I don't know that it's going to be a direct... Oh, well, I wasn't saying it was Musk. direct. I'm yeah. saying that he's going to get... I presume well, he's not working no, no, for free. No, obviously not. So but. one of the ways that he might get monetized, and that's something else I did want to talk about, so as of, I think, April of this year, you officially are able to monetize videos on the site. I'm a very heavy Twitter user and a very heavy content creator. I haven't seen any evidence of anybody actually availing themselves of this. You have to have Twitter Blue, which we know that very few people took advantage of. Uh, you have to have um, be over 18. You have to have been on the site for, I think, at least uh, a month. There are these requirements. But at that point, it's not clear to me how the video monetization mechanism actually works because the whole beauty of Twitter, the way it functions, is that because of who you follow, things appear on your feed. And if you're not, if you have to subscribe to follow someone in the first instance, it's not clear how you would get exposure to the kind of content that you would then want to subscribe to. And other platforms like YouTube that similarly rely on the algorithm to expose folks to your content usually either have you go off off Twitter, uh, sorry, off the off the platform, off YouTube, to start to monetize it, it through a Patreon or something like that, or there is the YouTube function of giving you a certain amount of money for the number of views that you the, get on yep. the back end because of the advertising, right? And so it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out and whether if the Tucker model proves successful, it does have the effect of making YouTube a more common resource for video creators. Twitter, you mean. Sorry, tw Twitter, nice. <laughs> yeah. A more common resource for video creators. Look, uh, more competition in this space would definitely be a good thing. You know, we've run sure. up against uh, YouTube's terms of service in an unpleasant way in the past. So I would love to see more competition in this space. I take your point on, you know, most of the things you've said about Elon Musk a minute ago. Right, he's he's our ways that he has not lived up to the stated commitment of having it be a free speech site. Um, that's probably going to continue to be the case, and we'll just have to hold him accountable when there are examples of things that don't seem very free speechy going on on Twitter, but uh, it will be interesting to see. Absolutely. More Rising right after this.
CNN is still planning to host President Trump for a town hall tonight. This just hours after a jury found him guilty of sexually abusing and defaming magazine writer E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. Hashtag boycott CNN was trending on Twitter yesterday. The town hall will be the first TV event of the 2024 campaign. Former Representative Liz Cheney's PAC came for Trump and his fitness for office in a new 2024 television ad. Let's take a look at some of that. He watched on television while the mob attacked law enforcement, invaded the Capitol, and hunted the vice president. He refused for three hours to tell the mob to leave. There has never been a greater dereliction of duty by any president. Trump was warned repeatedly that his plans for January 6th were illegal. He didn't care, and today he celebrates those who attacked our Capitol. Donald Trump has proven he is unfit for office. Donald Trump is a risk America can never take again. According to the Washington Post, the ad will be running on CNN before and during the town hall. CNN's Caitlin Collins will be moderating, which AP says will be a big test for her. People are saying it's putting her in an unfair position, a difficult position of having to live fact check Donald Trump. Folks have made the distinction between folks who have interviewed Donald Trump not live versus in this setting as um, why this particular event is irresponsible from a journalistic perspective. I see your brow furring. <laughs> irresponsible to let the former president, <laughs> and potentially future president, speak on television. I, it, this boycott because, because he was found responsible in a civil action that has no bearing on whether he is going to be a political candidate again. He is going to be a political candidate. He's running for president. He's running. I'm sorry if you don't like that fact. That's totally understandable. If you want to vote against him, great. If you want to hear more from him and then make up an informed opinion about whether he is the right choice for the Republican Party, let alone the presidency, that's great. CNN, in some small way, is actually trying to help you do that here. But uh, again, this is more like deplatforming nonsense, really. This is yeah. the idea that that you can keep him quiet or something like it's just it's ridiculous and i'm look i'm sorry even if you think he is absolutely guilty of what eugene carroll accused him of etc that that doesn't affect whether we should hear about what his policy ideas are he is a viable candidate for the presidency he has already yeah. been president i tend to agree i think the eugene carroll hook is feels like a pretext to uh for people to who want to articulate mm -hmm. their concern that they are basically not up to the challenge of fact-checking Trump in real time. I, I do believe that there's a, a journalistic responsibility for an interviewer to be able to push back against incorrect things that are, are said, mm -hmm. misleading things that are said, whoever the Caitlin person Caitlin can ask him about the E. Jean Carroll incident. Right, right. And, and that's, that is an obligation that journalists have. I think that sometimes when people panic about moments like this, it's because they realize that there have been so many instances where journalists have not been prepared to actually mm -hmm. fulfill their obligation. And I don't think the answer to that is to not do interviews, or to not quote unquote platform people, but to prepare and make journalists raise to the standard of the importance of the interview that there is. We just saw that bizarre debacle with the BBC reporter and Elon Musk. I think there are legitimate questions to be put to Elon Musk about how he's been running Twitter and whether he's lived up to his ex the expectations that he set for himself when he took over the site, et cetera. However, that journalist was not prepared, and it ended up, yes, being a win for Elon Musk that may or may not have been deserved in all instances. I think some of the BBC questions were bad but fair and other, you know, like poorly worded but fair or poorly pressed upon but fair, and others were 
kind of absurd um, and, and poorly grounded. The obligation, we saw this also, by the way, in the um, 60 Minutes interview with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene recently. Many people said um, uh, Leslie um, Stahl shouldn't have done that interview because she let MTG get away with too much in the interview. because people, many viewers, probably a lot of viewers of CNN, are, they're spectating a sport. They want to see... Dunks. They want to see Trump destroyed and eviscerated, et cetera, et cetera. That's all. That's that's what they're tuning in for. And, and you, that's and what you, they expect. You can tell that the journalists also have that expectation for themselves because mm-hmm. they, you, they, you often perceive that they have a fear of letting the person talk. Like if they say the bad thing, I'm not prepared to actually substantively critique it. So I'm just I'm just going to say no. Like when the Leslie Slot interview was so frustrating, is that. Marjorie Taylor Greene would say something that I personally don't disagree, don't agree with, or think is untrue. But mm-hmm. Stahl's response was to say, "Well, no, that's not a, that's not true." Just like she's, MTG says yes, Stahl says no, and the viewers aren't edified in any way. So yes, it I mean takes you have to pick lot. your battles when you do these kinds of inter- you know you can't if the second the person you're interviewing starts to say something you disagree with, you cut them off, you talk over, no, that's not true. Like, then it's it's not, it becomes not productive. Again, maybe that's what the audience is looking for. Certainly, uh, people on the other side will feel like that was totally unfair. Um, It's not, you know, you have to have an actual conversation, let the other person talk. Yeah, this is a difficult art. The the danger, the danger is not in letting the person talk. The danger is you not having a response to them. And in fact, people often hoist themselves by their own petard if you just give them enough rope to proverbially hang themselves. So this is a media competency competency problem, I believe, not an actual platforming problem. And to the extent that people are saying, well, he was recently found liable for sexual assault, this is a man who has had these charges against him and many other rape charges against him. His own wife, ex-wife, had to retract rape accusations against him since time immemorial. If that was the standard, he should never have been interviewed for anything in the first place. This feels like a pretext. Here's what I'm curious about. Are they going to, like, cut away or you know, do the whole do MS? It was MSNBC that did, cut away from RFK, right? And that that happened. I forget which. Maybe you were on vacation when that happened. No, um, I remember it happening. Yeah, but yeah. I just don't. It was yeah. ABC. Excuse me. Thank you, producers. Um, are they going to do that if he starts going down election denial or something? I mean, probably like that's the most likely also, thing. Also, let him election deny. Yeah, no, right. Here, but they're going to the be thing. totally unwilling to do that. The public doesn't like election yeah. denial, right? Even yeah. some significant portion of Republicans are embarrassed by the election denialism. So let them see who he is and and and, and push back against him and they let him help. stay on national TV in front of everyone right. that he doesn't respect democracy. But look or at how, but look at how liberals are approaching this. They're approaching this from a, it is reckless to yeah. allow him to spew these lies. There should be this is. You know, we're we're circling out around many of the same themes with, with Tucker on Twitter, yeah. et cetera. The the, the mind melting of liberal progressives on the ability to say things they disagree with and how and how the system has not been designed to. Well, the system was never designed to prevent that. First Amendment, again, and it's they're so uncomfortable with that, and we're just seeing examples of that over and over again. Yeah, people, people point to folks like Milo Yiannopoulos as evidence that deplatforming works. Mm-hmm. I would argue that depl- Milo Yiannopoulos was abandoned by his own cohort when he right. spoke, when he was allowed to speak, and he m- made those weird kind of pro-pedophile sympathetic statements, and that's when everybody abandoned yeah, him. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, de- like, showing up to his events and protesting him and trying to get the event shut down, that did not work. Right. That is what made, that him, made him famous for a time period the most famous yeah. commentator on the right. It turned out he actually didn't have a whole lot to say, yeah. uh, he, that he wasn't very ideologically 
deep. In fact, a lot of his writing was written by interns and other people. Right. So actually, if you'd let him speak, right. that would. But he, he was ne he was never getting through all his material because then people would come and shout him down, and then the story would be how he how was shouted down. down. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, the crew over at MSNBC weighed in on the Trump town hall earlier this week. Here's what they had to say. But it's it, it feels to me. Like, this is a pretty open attempt by CNN to push itself to the right and make itself attractive and show its belly to MAGA and to conservatives, hoping that they will tune in. That's what it feels like to me. What does it seem to you? Well, it feels like horrifically bad judgment to me. Um, let's be clear about this. Um, this is not journalism. This is entertainment. She's doing the meme with the, the butterfly. It's CNN. <laughs> is this Mecca? <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. It's absurd. I just I don't get it. I don't get it. And, it's, and it is worth noting, and I wouldn't say this earlier. If the standard is people who have been credibly accused of sexual assault shouldn't get a platform, there are some big questions about the inconsistencies between how Donald Trump is being treated and how Joe Biden has been treated. And Bill Clinton? And Bill Clinton, 100%. And so, you know, Kamala Harris, at a campaign event in Nevada in April of 2019, said of the allegations against Joe Biden, quote, I believe them and I respect them being able to tell their story and having the courage to do it. And the media never once, as far as I know, in the years since she has been VP, or in the context of the 2020 general election race, asked her about the inconsistency between her backing Joe Biden as president mm -hmm. and her statements on the campaign trail, not to mention all of the other policy and ideological gaps between the two of them. And that is what makes a farce of journalism, not these kind of the CNN town halls. Exactly. The standard articulated on that issue, on sexual misconduct, by the activist liberal Me Too people, a standard that was to wholly embraced by both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden himself, is to believe women, believe accusers by default, automatically. I've never thought that standard made any actual sense. Um, you, can, you can show respect to people who make accusations. You can treat it seriously. You can, you know, you can get them resources they need, and then investigate it and be respectful and not dismiss. Yeah, don't that automatically one, don't disbelieve dismiss. women should be 100%. the standard. And if you want to argue yeah. that historically, you know, they've been treated with scorn, yes. and we, we, should have, we should be working toward reversing that, absolutely, 100%. Right. But you clearly can't. <laughs> it, it is totally discordant. I mean, I don't think it makes sense anyway, but totally discordant to have that view. But then also say, well, but Joe Biden. Yeah. Well, I'll under be that tuning... view, he is, he is yeah, guilty. For sure. I'll be tuning in tonight. I'm sure we'll be talking about it tomorrow. Yes. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. Yesterday, a jury found that Donald Trump sexually abused the defamed journalist Eugene Carroll and ordered the former president to pay $5 million in damages. Carol testified that Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in the mid-90s and then defamed her in 2022 by claiming her accusations were a, quote, complete con job, a hoax, and a lie. Trump reacted to the verdict in a Truth Social post yesterday, saying, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. A lawyer for the former president said he will be appealing the decision. Now, if you haven't been following the saga, here's audio from Carol's 2019 New York Times account from an interview she gave to the Times of what happened on that day. Take a listen. 
And at that point, he said lingerie, or he may have said panties, he may have said underwear, but I had the impression we started to go up the, the escalator. We went to whatever floor the lingerie was on, and we walked in, there was a counter on the left, and there was nobody there. And there was a, it looked like a filmy, sort of see-through gray, and when he picked it up, I could see it was a bodysuit. And he said, go put this on. I thought, you put it on. And then the scene really started, I'm thinking, this is terrific. <laughs> this is terrific. He says, yeah. it, it looks like it would fit you. I said, no, it goes with your eyes. And he, uh, there was a little bit of banter back and forth, which I was loving. And I was laughing. And he went like this towards the dressing room. And I'm thinking, I am actually laughing out loud, thinking, I'm going to make him put this bodysuit over his pants. That is the ski. And I'm thinking it's gonna be the funniest thing I have ever seen in my, I, I've got a picture in my head as we're walking, him going like this and putting it on. That's what I'm thinking. And we walk in the dressing room. I'm in front of it. I pass in front of him, he shuts the door and just pushes me against the wall, boom. And kiss me. And I was continuing to laugh. And that's when I started to push him back. And that's when he started to lean forward. And that's when he put his weight against me. And then she just goes on to describe how he pulled uh, him, himself out of his pants and attempted to penetrate her. Now, part of why the uh, rape allegation was not—he uh, was not filed, uh, found liable for that was because even in her own testimony, and as you hear her telling that story, she says she wasn't sure he was able, uh, able to successfully insert himself into her. However, she did uh, win on those other charges. Uh, the, she goes on, it's worth listening to her whole account of how they met in the revolving door of Bergdorf Goodman's, and it started out as this kind of um, light— encounter what she thought was going to make a good story for her girlfriends and then turn into something different when they were in the changing room. Another thing that affected the outcome, many legal observers believe, is this little bit from Trump's deposition testimony when he was asked about his famous grab him by the grab her by the PUSSY comments from 2016, which many people felt like was very reflective of what Carol had described happened to her in that dressing room. Let's take a listen. And you say, and again, this has become very famous in this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet, just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. Now, Trump chose not to testify at trial. This deposition testimony was much, you know, largely what they had in terms of his view of things. And some people took that failure to kind of, you know, distance himself from those statements in that moment as a sort of tacit admission. And of course, the preponderance of evidence in the civil case here is just 51%, more likely than not. What do you make of it all? Sure. Uh, as you said, much lower burden of proof. This is what the jury decided. They decided it was more likely than not that it happened mostly the way uh, E. Jean Carroll had claimed. Um, I don't know what their thinking was, how they reached that conclusion. I 
didn't see the evidence they saw, so maybe something was more compelling to them. So, I can't yeah. imagine for myself concluding with any certainty that this, which happened a long time ago and was witnessed by no one else, was well, more, it, it could have happened. It could, I don't know. Like, I just have no idea whether it happened or so not. So part of but. the evidence that they uh, used at trial, there were two contemporaneous accounts, two friends of hers that she had mm -hmm. told at the time. Contemporaneous evidence has um, become increasingly a go-to, a hallmark of these Me Too cases. It seems to really shore up the claims of the um, the alleged victim, if they are able to demonstrate that they didn't wait till years later to tell somebody that they were able to tell somebody at the time. Um, so those people both testified in com combination with um, Trump's deposition testimony there uh, uh, and other women who have accused Trump of similar kinds of behavior also offered their testimony and these, the judge decided that the behavior was similar enough to it to bring that in as uh, you know ev evidence against um, Donald Trump so again he the, the jury found that he had, you know, digitally penetrated her and assaulted her in the ways um, that she described, but not that the rape had taken place. And now, you know, Trump's response being what it is, there is this question of whether or not this is going to damage his reputation in the eyes of voters or whether or not the fact that these kinds of accusations have been swirling for a really long time. The Access Hollywood tape has been out since yeah, the beginning I, of his political I would love campaign to meet career. The voter for whom this is the last straw. I predict there are not that many of them out there. Mm. Um, this is, I, I certainly, it will play into some of his most fervent supporters' idea that he has been subjected to some unusual kind of witch hunt, as he himself has claimed. Um, I think a lot of other uh, people who might vote Republican sometimes or would be willing to vote Republican have already been so put off by Donald Trump's behavior mm. that um, they're, those voters are pretty much lost to him. Does this matter that much in the scheme of things? I can't possibly imagine that it does. Um, and in fact, if you're like a militant, if, if you know, not having a president who is even theoretically complicit in sexual misconduct is your top issue, you're kind of out of luck because the sitting president also has some number of accusations against him, including uh, most infamously the one from Tara Reid. Um, I would say the same thing about this as I said about that. I, with no malice whatsoever to the person making the accusation, I, I, it, it could very well be true. I, I, did, I don't know how to make a determination about something that happened that long ago that doesn't have um, uh, evidence beyond what you've mentioned, which is contemporaneous. I believe in Tara Reid's case, she did have similarly Absolutely. had told someone. And even more and so, I, people she can credit in, that for what it's worth. But, she, she called into yes. the Larry King show talking yeah. about, or her mother, I believe, called into the Larry King show talking about what had happened to her daughter. And so we have video evidence of her making a, a near contemporaneous claim. And there were some other people that she told at the time as well. And yet, I completely take your point. If people are saying, well, the alternative is Biden, who has had a number of credible uh, allegations of sexual misconduct against him, allegations that early in the primary, even her, his own VP, Kamala Harris, said she believed those women, then maybe this doesn't make a difference. Of course, um, we have a video. Alyssa Farah, former uh, host of this show and uh, co-host of The View, weighed in, saying that she thinks it'll, it feels different if there's actually a um, a finding of a liability in a, in, a, in a legal context, in a court context. Let's take a, take a look. Listen, when Donald Trump tells you who he is, believe him. Um, I mean, that is, this is, it, we wanted to chalk it up to locker room talk in 2016. It was not locker room talk. Now he is credibly, he has been, he's now been 
charged with, or I should say held liable in this case, for actually committing sexual assault. Like, I cannot underscore that enough. Uh, that your guest before made an incredibly important point. Any man or woman who was falsely accused would be the first person to show up and to defend themselves in a rape allegation or a sexual assault allegation. He couldn't be bothered to show up. I have countless cases of what I considered impropriety in the White House that I brought to the chief of staff because I thought the way he engaged with women was dangerous. This is, I mean, we know these facts, the patterns have laid out, and now this is something that's not just speculation, it's not just allegations, it is a jury of his peers deciding that he did this. Wait, you brought to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, uh, or other chiefs of staff, incidents that you witnessed of Donald Trump behaving in, inappropriately with women? I did, as well as uh, former White House Press Sec Secretary Stephanie Grisham and others. Um, nothing that rises to this level, but things that I would consider improper. So Alyssa Farrow, of course, was the White House Director of Strategic Communications and Assistant to President Trump uh, back in 2020, speaking to her experiences there. What do you make of this claim of hers that his failure to appear at trial and testify in his own defense is indicative of something? I wouldn't say that I agree with that. I, I don't think we can predict precisely how someone accused, whether falsely or credibly, would behave in the same way that it in fact, people are criticized for critiquing the way the the accusers behave, right? Like, oh, that's, you know, with the model accuser sort of myth, that whole discourse, if you remember that. Um, look, I mean, some, some, many accusations of sexual misconduct are totally grounded in truth and are real, and it happens. Um, some are not. Some are some mix of the, somewhere in between what the dispute between two parties. Uh, you know, she's had her day in this civil court action and has won, and that's just the way it is. I don't it's know also worth noting because um, people will be talking about this as well. Part of what enabled, not part, what entirely enabled uh, Carol to bring this case was a change in New York law that happened, I believe, just last year that gave people a um, kind of a year statute of limitations, reopened the statute of limitations, if it were, to bring these kind of civil, uh, civil case, cases uh, for sexual assault, for these kind of Me Too crimes. People, because of the Me Too movement, began advocating for this sort of a law, and E. Jean Carroll was one of the people who was advocating for this exact law that, w that she has now, you know, been able to take advantage. And I don't mean that in a weighted way. I just mean who has been able to use to successfully come to this judgment uh, against Donald Trump. So I'm sure that will be part of the discourse and be seen as probably, um, you know, uh, kind of a working of the system to people who are inclined to be supportive of Trump. Um, mm -hmm. But it remains to be seen whether or not this kind of more concrete legal finding that he is at least culpable in a civil context will have any bearing on his political career as we continue to head on into the 2024 race. I suspect it will not, but we shall see more rising right after this. Debt ceiling negotiations between congressional leaders and the White House stalled yesterday after President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy failed to come to terms on a compromise. Now, both leaders maintain that default is not in the cards. However, Democrats accused GOP leadership of hostage taking by not committing to completely taking default off the table. The most immediate thing we can do is ensure the continued reliance of our economy and the financial system. And most important, thing we have to do in that regard is to make sure the threat 
by the Speaker of the House to default on the national debt is off the table. For over 200 years, America has never, ever, ever failed to pay its debt. To put in the capital and colloquial terms, America is not a deadbeat nation. We have never, ever failed to meet the debt. Now, as a result, we're one of the most respected nations of the world. We pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage-taking from some of the mega-Republicans in Congress. With no deal in sight, the president also said he's considering invoking the 14th Amendment to get around this. I have been considering the 14th Amendment. And a man I have enormous respect for, Larry Tribe, who advised me for a long time, thinks that it would be legitimate. But the problem is it would have to be litigated. And in the meantime, without an extension, it would still end up in the same place. I'll be very blunt with you. When we get by this, I'm thinking about taking a look at months down the road is to see whether what the court would say about whether or not the, uh, it does work. So Lawrence Tribe uh, wrote a New York Times op-ed uh, very recently saying that he thinks that's a viable solution. Um, when he was working for Biden um, during the Obama presidency, Obama, he did not think that, and Obama concluded that that would not be something he had the authority to do. I'm seeing, yeah, obviously, some people are, the people are, legal experts are mixed under whether this is a good pathway. Um, Janet Yellen was, seems to think it's not. What do you mean that he didn't think it was viable under Biden? My understanding is that they were workshopping this during, during the Obama administration. They opted not to use the strategy, but not that they, for political reasons, but not that that was deemed to be a wrong strategy, okay, just this right politically risky right strategy. Well, and as, right, as Biden concedes there, it would actually have to be litigated, right? He would essentially be going to, you have to go to the Supreme Court to say that, because the debt ceiling is a congressional act, and saying that that violate, that detracts from his power as the executive. So ultimately, it would land right. for the Supreme Court. So to Court. be clear, the 14th Amendment strategy is relying on this verbiage in the Constitution, which says, the validity of the public debt authorized by law shall not be questioned. And the theory is that the Treasury Department can keep on borrowing because it has been given this kind of absolute authority, this absolute constitutional authority to not default on America's debt. And some people have said, well, he should go ahead and invoke this. Um, because litigation will stretch out, we can get us past the debt ceiling um, kind of cliff. I think it's, it's just set to happen in June. Um, some other people said that even evoking this strategy would cause instability in the global markets in a way that would perhaps um, uh, hurt Biden in an electoral context, that any uh, instability is ultimately going to reflect negatively on him because he is the president and because he's in the middle of this presidential race and that the context might be different at other times. People have pointed out, as Biden did, that, of course, America has never defaulted on its debt. The debt ceiling is a kind of a fiction that Reagan uh, raised the debt ceiling umpteenth times, that it's been raised, I believe, 78 times since the 1960s, and that, to the extent that this is a hostage situation, um, that the messaging should be that Republicans are ultimately threatening a global economic crisis in order to get various cuts made to the budget that they're not able to get through other kinds of and other kind of legislative moments without this kind of leverage. 
Right, and as our uh, guest yesterday, Mike Lillis, pointed out, this is only the scenario only presents itself when you have divided government because right. the debt ceiling is gleefully raised by Republicans who have no actual interest in controlling spending when they actually have the power to do so. Yeah. Democrats have no interest in controlling spending, period. And so spending is not controlled. <laughs> well, yes and no. So it's interesting because some Democrats have been putting forward proposals about what to cut. And what's so frustrating to me about these debt ceiling conversations is so little of it is about substantively what actually needs to be cut, because Republicans are trying not to be too specific about the fact that they want to do things like cut very popular so-called entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare, raising the ages of eligibility on those programs, at the same time that they are refusing to do things like cut the military budget, despite posturing as kind of these anti-war populists. We interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene recently on this show, and I asked her specifically. It was the day after, I believe, that the House passed their initial pass at this um, you know, at, their, at, the, at the budget package that they wanted to put through. And I asked her why it was that all of the cuts seemed to be coming at the expense of poor and working people and things like the military budget were not under the microscope or a wealth tax wasn't an option. She said she does not support a wealth tax. And she said that she actually supports Biden's military budget and does not support any cuts to that budget despite being a Yeah, that was very uh, telling part of the interview um, because she has articulated a different foreign, foreign policy vision that would allow us to have a more constrained—if you want to constrain our foreign policy, if you want to constrain our nation-building, our involvement in every conflict on the globe, constrain the military budget. Right. <laughs> Fire people right. who work for the federal government in the in the national intelligence apparatus, in the— you know, Cut the don't FBI. Have, but that's something yeah. she's advocated for. But as yeah. I asked, also asked her in that interview, she has not proposed any legislation or anything, so far at least, that would actually follow up on the rhetoric that she has been putting out there about uh, defunding the FBI. Now— I'm not, I'm I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not picky. I'm not choosy. Here, we can, we can uh, cut we all those Robbie. entitlements you like. We can cut. Uh, we can do all those things and the military budget. Uh, like everything could be on the table. It'd be we know. Fortunately or unfortunately, as Donald Trump would say, many people's <laughs> grandmothers across the country feel very differently. By the way, here is um, California Representative Ro Khanna talking about the kinds of things he would propose to bring the budget in line from a more progressive perspective. Sat down in a room with Speaker McCarthy. Maybe you have. You're both Californians, after all. What are your proposals? I'm willing to sit down with him, and I have before. We've worked on legislation. Here's one thing I think bipartisan we could get behind. You know the people who got some of the COVID money who should not have qualified for it? Multi-million dollar firms that basically gamed the system. Why don't we audit everyone who took those COVID loans and make sure they actually qualified? That would start. That'd be a start. I'm not sure you want to do that, Congressman, because you may not like what you find. You can search who took COVID money on its public data, and I don't know if you want to do that. Well, look, I, I mean, I'm all for the mom and pop shops getting it, but if you're a multi-million dollar business and you got COVID funding and you didn't qualify, I mean, that should be money coming back to the taxpayers. There's a lot more uh, that I, I, I want in terms of repealing some of the top tax cuts uh, for the very wealthy on, that Trump had and Bush had, but those are going to be more contentious. But the, the COVID money uh, that went out to people who didn't deserve it, that should be bipartisan. 
So that's very interesting. I, I, I agree. Uh, I'm I always happy to crack down on waste, fraud, and abuse in, in government funding and welfare programs. Um, absolutely abhorrent to me the idea of, of, of so many uh, firms that were able to collect COVID payments that are wealthy, et cetera. Um, we, we've we covered how a lot of media institutions were able to uh, collect um, the payments. That said, I, I you know, audited. We've talked about IRS issues in the past mm -hmm. and how they just tend to go after uh, poorer, Poor less resourced people. So, in practice, how do you? I think you'd run into the same problem. How do you? How would you empower the auditors to go after? Look, the that people is he's not quite the black box that I think some commentators on both the left and the right have made mm -hmm. it out to be. There are problems with empowering a a. Um, agency that mm -hmm. can do what the IRS can do, point blank period. But we know that 10 years ago, when it was at the funding levels that Biden has restored it to, it used those resources to go after more wealthy people as a proportion of the people that it went after than it goes after, than it goes after now. So we know that more funding in real life terms results in more rich people actually being held accountable. We're trying to save money here, not spend no, the, more money. No, you, you, you get we recoup the money and taxes because the rich people is where all of the money is. Going after somebody who barely makes enough to be taxed in the first place isn't exactly filling the coffers of the IRS. And it's also worth noting, you know, talking about the Trump tax cuts, he says politically that's difficult to wind back. It's something that we should be talking about. You know, as of 2020, they had added almost $4 trillion to the deficit. The idea that these conservatives, I'm sorry, are able to posture as though they're the deficit hawks and that they are the ones that want to make sure this isn't a deadbeat nation and all of that rhetoric, those kind of policies giveaways to the rich, something like 83 cents out of every dollar of those tax cuts went to the top 1%, and they added to our federal deficit. And so to not want to repeal that at the same time that you're not seriously entertaining options like what Bernie and Ro Khan have been talking about in terms of raising the Social Security tax. That's a regressive tax, where working people, working class, middle class people are paying a much higher percentage of their income into Social Security than the rich because it's capped at, what, $160,000 a year. And your salary over that is it doesn't contribute to Social Security. Is that the kind of system we want to have? And why are we talking about raising the retirement age for everyday people instead of looking at simply reforming some of these tax systems to make the rich pay their fair share? Okay, we got to go. More rising right after this. Senator Dianne Feinstein is set to return to Washington after a nearly three-month-long absence from her post that brought on calls for her resignation. The California Democrats has been scrutinized by some in her own party for depriving the Democrats' ability to advance President Biden's judicial nominees and bring the—she's effectively brought the agenda to a halt in this closely divided chamber. So, Dianne Feinstein back at, back at her desk— working hard on behalf of the American people, her Californian constituents. You must be so yeah, relieved. Look, it's, I, I personally am not implicated in this as I'm not deeply invested in the fate of the Democratic Party, but this is obviously a relief for Democrats because they were really up against a wall here. Their options were very limited with respect to what they could do to get around the fact that she was out for three months with shingles. They could not advance any judicial nominees. They, and they couldn't effectively replace her. They couldn't effectively replace her Because either. they would have had to have Republican consent to do so, and there's no reason. This is a battle between two sides. Only one side can win. There aren't really opportunities for, like, in a game theory sense, for, yeah. like, collusion or cooperation because they're just trying to thwart the other side's agenda. Yeah, so she's back, and I guess the Democratic Party is collectively uh, praying for her continued good health, at least until she gets through this term. But the 
the critiques that many people like Ro Khanna were making while she were, was out haven't gone away. The Democratic Party is in a really bad habit of not thinking strategically about their judicial appointments or their political appointments, generally speaking. There was a study that was done that demonstrated, for instance, that Republican federal judges tend to retire strategically when there is a Republican in office so that they can pick their own replacement. They will go on what's called senior status, which means they don't have to stop practicing. Uh, you don't have to stop being a judge. You just have a smaller caseload. And when you go on senior status is the time at which you are able to be replaced. What do you think explains Democrats' inability or, or Democrats being less likely to be strategic about judicial um, retirements and such it's, things. It's what, this, what explains it's this, it? It's her time attitude. Yeah. It's this personality-driven really, politics where there's no—I don't know what else, how else to explain it. Mm -hmm. Either they are incompetent or stupid Could to be the both. point of incompetence. Could be both. Right. Or they genuinely believe that the legacy of someone like Dianne Feinstein is more important than the legacy of the Democratic Party or the interests of the constituents who are voting Democrats, who they're ostensibly supposed to protect. And the gap between the Democratic, Democratic rhetoric about how we are the party that upholds your substantive rights and we're the last line of defense against fascism and women's rights and reproductive rights and the rights of minorities and all these kinds of things are the sine qua non of our entire our political project. The gap between the headiness of that rhetoric and the complete abdication of the responsibility to do what needs to be done to actually be effective legislators is borderline criminal. Right. She's not an effective legislator. She's not capable of being an effective legislator at this point. That is not a like conservative hit smear on her. That's something members of her own staff have said. That is something that has been observed by pol political people, by people in the offices of the Capitol. It is something that that her some of her colleagues have remarked on, in including uh, Representative Rokana, but only to be like thunderously shouted down by Nancy Pelosi and others, saying, "Well, no, you know, this is disrespectful. You wouldn't, you wouldn't. No one's looking at it's because she's a woman. No right. one would ask a man to retire, which is nonsense." Of course, uh, people who are, <laughs> have been making arguments about uh, whether John Fetterman is fit to serve yeah. for months. Very yes, compelling arguments. I would. And, and argue. it wasn't age related because he wasn't old. No. He isn't old, and it. And it wasn't about him being a woman, because he's not. It's this question of whether or not someone who has suffered a stroke is cognitively fit to serve. And the idea that people would pretend, when that example is right there in recent history, that this could solely be about— It's ongoing. Being, it's, it, <laughs> it's not even in recent history. It's it ongoing. ongoing. And by the way, questions about Dianne Feinstein's cognitive capacity have been per percolating since before— her last election cycle, right? So this isn't one of those things where you just kind of have to double down. With the, with the Fetterman example, at very least, there was not an opportunity. He had a stroke like a, what, a week uh, before the election date. Like there was no opportunity to, sl to slot in somebody in the alternative. And so you can understand from a strategic perspective mm -hmm. why Democrats just want to double down and make the best of, the, of a bad situation. Dianne Feinstein's situation is a problem of the Democratic Party's own creation. It was something that was easily avoidable. This is not a situation where she's she's a, a popular Democrat in a Republican right. district, and no, so we have to hold on to her. That's California. It's California. So this isn't. I mean, there there are examples. When in did California, she run for like, re-election? Katie Porter is one of those people who actually is a blue person in a red district, and sure. so you can make the case for it. Well, it's difficult to find someone who fits that profile that her voters are going to continue to want to reelect. Dianne Feinstein is not in a similar situation.
Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible. Um, it, it really feels like ego and deference and this kind of girl boss type attitude that it's her time. It's her time still. Yeah. Her time is her, her ongoing. It doesn't end until Holmes. she decides. <laughs> she, she and Elizabeth Holmes are just girl boss too close to the side. If you didn't miss our uh, segment on Elizabeth Holmes and her latest um, you know, celebration in the New York Times yesterday, you should definitely go and check that out. Let's let's remember some of the things that Diane Feinstein has been accused of in terms of her um, cognitive ability. This is from an article uh, back uh, in 2022 last year where uh, she was engaged, this is from the San Francisco Chronicle, she was engaged in an extended conversation, this, this reporter with Feinstein, they prepared for a rigorous policy discussion like those they had had for her many with her many times over the last 15 years. But instead, the lawmaker said they had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during an interaction that lasted several hours. Rather than delve into policy, policy Feinstein, then 88, repeated the same small talk questions like asking the lawmaker what mattered to voters in their district. The member of Congress said with no apparent recognition, the two had already had a similar conversation. Yeah. Which is understandable. She's 89. A lot of people at that age are not at the top of their game, are beginning to experience cognitive decline. That can happen to you a lot younger than that, in For fact. Sure. And it's not true across the board. There's tremendous variance in in how how mentally and physically well you are at that advanced age, and some people still have it all together. But she, there's evidence of her decline. There, as you said, she, her not being able to identify people, being disoriented, confused about where she is and what's going on, having to be really excessively handheld and coached by senior staff members. And again, at 89, that's not surprising at all. And it's a problem across the Democratic Party. It really is a gerontocracy. And you see that there is a failure to cultivate new young, young talent, talent the way there is in the Republicans. When there are were these kind of upstart, young, promising folks in the Democratic Party in the 2020 race, you saw what happened to folks like Cory Booker, um, uh, Julian Castro. They made a completely legitimate criticism of Joe Biden and his inability to remember facts that had come out during the debate. And once they went into the spin room afterward and said, hey, Biden is having some cognitive issues, that's the last you heard from them, not just in the context of the primary, but basically to date. Where are they now? I feel like I used to turn on the TV and see Cory Booker all the time. Where has he been? The metaphorical, like, cane from the back <laughs> exactly. of the stage came and exactly. yanked him off. And look what happened to the debacle in New York State, where if New York State had been able to win its congressional races, Democrats might have control of the House right now. But despite the um, failures of New York Party leadership, Chuck Schumer um, and uh, uh, Mahoney and— um, uh, 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 what's his face? I'm sorry, the current uh, minority leader in the House, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, none of those people were punished. Everybody's rewarded. Hakeem Jeffries is now in the leadership role as minority leader in the House and absolutely zero heads role. So there's like no accountability for being old and out of touch. There's no accountability for actually failing to perform, perform your duties and saving the House for the Democratic Party. And people are punished for simply going against the crown. And as a, as a consequence, you don't get good, fresh new talent coming up through the ranks. And not, we haven't even gotten into how Nancy Pelosi and the elder leadership treats the younger, very popular members of the squad, not just AOC, but people like Rashida Tlaib, who really do have the faith and confidence of 
their constituents. This is becoming a uniquely American problem, having something to do with our system of government. Um, it seems to be parliamentary democracies yeah. don't have this kind of power. They retire their leaders. They say, thank you, good job, move on. Right. We're going to put someone new in power. In the U.S., man, the, uh, the I don't know, the greater survivability of <laughs> diseases and the ability to cope with old age, and, and uh, it, which is a good thing, but bad from the standpoint of just allowing some of our leaders to, to be in Congress for literally four decades. Yeah. Beyond the point where they're doing anything or where it's, where it's anything but elder abuse to let it continue. But there's nothing to be done. Yeah. All right, we told you how we really felt about that. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this. Representative George Santos has been arrested on 13 counts of fraud, including seven counts of wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, one count of theft of public funds, and two counts of making materially false statements to the House of Representatives federal prosecutors report. The congressman was charged by the Justice Department yesterday for a series of federal crimes, and his indictment comes ahead of his expected appearance in court in the Eastern District of New York today. He was taken into custody in Long Island, New York, this morning, ABC reports. The indictment says Santos induced supporters to donate to a company, quote, under the false pretense that the money would be used to support his campaign. The indictment says he used the money instead for personal expenses, such as luxury designer clothes, and to pay off his credit cards. U.S. Attorney Baron Peace said the indictment seeks to hold Santos accountable for various alleged fraudulent schemes and brazen misrepresentations. Taken together, the allegations in the indictment charge Santos with relying on repeated dishonesty and deception to ascend to the halls of Congress to enrich himself. This is a large number of charges with a potential lengthy prison mm. sentence. If uh, convicted, um, he would be well advised to plead guilty and get some kind of deal. But uh, we'll have to see. Obviously, George Santos has admitted to being uh, not truthful about aspects of his personal resume and uh, his his academic credentials, some other some other things. Yeah, that's that's the the way to way to undersell it, Rob. Well, that's like the understatement of the year. Well, I'd say he hasn't admitted to the financial crimes. Well, he's... certainly not. But we did know previously that he was wanted for similar kinds of uh, fraud charges out of Brazil. 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 Um, if people have forgotten who George Santos is, the kinds of things he's, he's lied about. He lied about where he went to high school. He lied about where he went to college. He lied about working on Wall Street. He lied about his parents being Holocaust survivors. Um, and 9-11? And, and he lied about being Jewish. Oh, yes. He no, no. Alleged his, parents, his parents weren't Holocaust. I mean, the, that would be it. It was that his mom, uh, his, his grandparents, his family. Right. Um, that his mom Different both died in 9-11 and uh, was was died as a product of 9/11 and also of yeah right so she didn't die on that date I mean this is I mean <laughs> right, yeah, it would be it it's morbid yeah. but also absurd which is why it, it provokes a certain kind of a chuckle um, there was the swindling of the dog breeder um, I mean this the stuff sure. gets wilder and wilder so when a story like this comes up it's not hard to believe that he would ha some of these lies would make him criminally liable at yes. a certain point. The question will become, does House Speaker Kevin McCarthy do anything about this? Do they initiate the proceedings to eject him from Congress? Mm -hmm. The members themselves can actually take that action. It happens very, very rarely, almost never. Um, it could be something that happens in this case, I think. Uh, despite 
George Santos, for all, by all appearances, making some friends in the House GOP caucus. He's been uh, hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene a little bit, who is a close ally of Kevin, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So it remains to be seen whether there are immediate, you know, not any longer in Congress consequences in addition to or uh, as an aside from the potential criminal charges he's facing. But uh, I, I, don't th I don't think anyone is surprised <laughs> that this moment has come. Yeah, in some ways, because, frankly, the charges are so consistent with what he's already been accused of, the fact that Republicans have already made the decision not to eject him from Congress, it seems like it might just carry over. I mean, I well, understand there's a difference between it's not just vibes now. Now it's it's federal uh, what wire fraud mm -hmm. um, and you know, obviously and you know we talk all the time on the show how they can overcharge. You know they can turn one crime into many crimes. Sure. They can they have all tricks in the books. Just because he's been charged with something does not mean he is guilty. Um, that sure. is that remains their burden to prove. You know just because it sounds like a lot of things doesn't mean they actually have a lot. Sure, but, although this is a little bit different than all of the Trump indictments, right, where it was they were charging him for um, each instance of the wire transfer. These are separate these are separate yeah. counts. This is wire fraud, money laundering. There's three counts of money, money laundering, but money laundering and wire fraud are different. Theft of public funds, um, the materially uh, false statements to the House. I mean, these are these are these are different kinds of crimes, distinct crimes. Again, obviously, the the state has to make their case. The prosecutors have to make their case, and that is what it is. But given the background that George Santos has, he is not going to, I think, get the same benefit of the doubt from the public so I, that another yeah. person might. I'm, uh, I'm reading, I'm looking at CNN, several representatives, Republican representatives have said, you know, I do believe that if a member of Congress is charged with federal crime, they should resign. That's Arkansas Representative French Hill. Uh, Representative Ryan Zinke of Montana said, let the ethics investigations play out. If it produces anything, he should be removed. So I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, there's another uh, aspect of all this. So Derek Myers tweeted yesterday, I can publicly confirm that during my brief time in the congressman's office, I had met secretly with agents from the FBI in an effort to work as a confidential informant and human asset against the congressman during my course of employment in his office. I cannot go into further details at this time. Investigative journalist Lee Fong, who we had on the show yesterday, took to Twitter to say, interesting if true, the FBI recruited Representative George Santos's volunteer staff as informants as soon as he was elected. Do they do this with senior lawmakers and leadership? Lots of potential corruption, but limitless prosecutorial discretion on who to target. So, and so we don't, Derek Myers worked very briefly for George Santos. He also describes himself as a journalist. You'll, if you'll recall, there was a lot of reporting on this individual because he accused Santos of sexual harassment. Remember the, the brief Me Too episode? Oh gosh, um, there's so many That things. was him. Yeah. And there was a recording, remember, that was made of Santos that was his doing. So he was very much injecting him, trying to get him. He, he was becoming front and center of this story. Derek Myers was. So I, you know, take grain what he's salt. saying here with a grain of salt. It is not clear that the FBI actually reached out to him. Maybe he reached out to the FBI in an effort to become a more central player in this interesting drama. Um, all that said, you know, it would be interesting, as Lee Fong points out, if, you know, for for to immediately begin your tenure on Capitol Hill and then and then to have the FBI seeking to acquire informants in your office that would seem to me to violate very, is very problematic yeah, on the sort of separation of powers <laughs> grounds like like we elected these people to be in congress yeah. the fbi doesn't get to say oh 
Yeah, you so elected the wrong people. We're going to, you know, embed agents in their offices to try to. Yeah, there certainly crimes. is a limitless uh, amount of overreach that can happen when you weaponize a um, largely unaccountable uh, office like the FBI in these kinds of ways. It certainly is possible to use it in an abusive way, and we've seen a lot of evidence that the FBI has been weaponized for political purposes in exactly that way. So that is certainly possibly the case. It also seems very certainly to be the case that George Santos is a serial liar, and it is likely that some of these charges uh, have a there there if his record up until this point is any indication. So both things can be true, and I think that people who have been skeptical of the FBI and its powers of overreach should continue to be skeptical of it at mm -hmm. the same time that they don't use that as an, as an excuse to let uh, you know elite people in power like George Santos off the hook for their miscarriages of justice yeah. and their, their 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 failure to act on behalf of the American people as they've been sent there to do. Yeah, I would say in the realm of public opinion, mm -hmm. this is not an individual, George Santos, who necessarily should benefit from um, the benefit of the doubt <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at this point. But, but that's separate from whatever action law enforcement is taking. He's entitled to full due process. And we'll see what evidence they have. And we'll see what action, potentially, Speaker McCarthy will take. Let me ask you this real quickly. Uh, you said earlier that uh, there were a number of Republican Congress members who said, well, if this comes down to criminal charges, then of course he shouldn't be a member of the body anymore. Do you think that that has implications for how people are going to look at a figure like Donald Trump if some of the charges that against him in the various cases start to stick, or as a consequence of him having lost this civil case that we'll talk about uh, elsewhere in the show? Look, I would broadly say, you know, it, it, for elected, for people elected to government, I mean, it's the people's job to decide whether they want this person in the in the government, not the FBI, not other aspects of the government. It's a, it's a democracy. We're electing the people we want to represent them. You might think it's crazy or ridiculous to elect yeah, someone like George Santos, but if the people elect George Santos. What these congressmen are saying is that they, yeah. not the people, but they, in their capacity, can eject him from the chamber based on the criminal charges. That's not saying we'll leave it up to the people in democracy. Right. So if that's the case for someone like George Santos, I'm just asking if that raises a certain implication for what would happen if Donald Trump himself, either what, as he's running for president or if he's successful, ends up having one of the charges against him stick. I mean, this is why I keep saying the best, the best way to rid, if you want to be rid of Trump, you have to defeat him at, at the ballot box. That mm -hmm. is the only way he will he will not be president anymore is to lose election. The fantasy that there's going to be enough, there's going to be criminal action, there's going to be something of that nature. That's not going to stop him from being president. All right. Losing so we'll, at the ballot box we'll do is going to stop we'll, him we'll from being kick, president. We'll maybe kick George Santos out, but we won't uh, keep those same standards for uh, Donald Trump at that. Well, are you, are you asking me what I think is I, I didn't I'm just, correct what, what, is, what I think is, is going to happen. Is, is there, are these, these Congress members exposing themselves to accusations of his hypocrisy or inconsistency by saying on the record that that's a standard that they would apply, apply to George Santos, but potentially not with respect to Donald Trump? Again, it's premature well, he because he hasn't been convicted. Exactly. Exactly. But it's an interesting precedent to set for yourself. If someone is successfully convicted of criminal charges they shouldn't serve in Congress, the implications for that, what that means for a convicted president are significant and perhaps out of step with some statements other people have made about how Donald Trump has been unfairly prosecuted, that they think that the people's votes should carry the day, that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily hold him to those same kinds of standards. It's, it's a, you know, yeah. it's an interesting question, that's all. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned.
We're continuing to follow the news about Representative George Santos, uh, who is facing uh, prosecution for various fraudulent schemes that have now come to light, according to national law enforcement. Federal agents uh, took him into custody. We're getting more details on what some of those alleged schemes involve, actually including uh, some fraudulent um, unemployment benefits that he that George Santos is alleged to have been collecting, which is ironic because he is uh, he is the uh, he has toughened work requirements for Medicaid recipients. He's been an advocate of doing yes. that through congressional action. So, and so not it's just, a yeah. kind of it's a hypocrisy being pointed out here. Right, and it's not just George Santos. It's you know this is a go-to tactic for managing the budget that conservatives often demand. Uh, making it more difficult for people to access these programs by imposing work requirements. Um, it's something that is part of the proposed uh, debt ceiling package. And because it is a, a, uh, an option that Republicans frequently foreground, Steve Scalise was actually just recently asked about whether this undermines the Republican narrative on this issue because of George Santos. Let's take a listen. So first of all, in regard to George Santos, he was already removed from all of his committees. Uh, there is a legal process. The charges just came out. We, we just saw some of them this morning. And so in America, there's a presumption of innocence, but they're serious charges. He's going to have to go through the legal process. Uh, but we're going to continue to work to root out fraud. And there's lots of it. And we're talking about tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in fraud. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a hypocrisy on George Santos's part. I it's not necessarily hypocrisy on anyone else's part, as long as you think that George Santos, if convicted of this, should suffer whatever punishment anyone else would, which is a so fair thing to think. That this is an interesting question, because apparently, previously, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Speaker of the House, had said that he would only ask George Santos to resign if he had been uh, uh, and indicted, uh, charged with a crime. Now that the charges are here, apparently the goalposts have shifted somewhat to if he is convicted of a crime, you heard Scalise uh, evoking a presumption of innocence, which I think is fair enough. But I think there is a question that is being raised as to whether or not, you know, the goalposts are going to be continually moved. And do you really trust someone when they say, well, we'll kick him out if he's convicted, if they've already been willing to say the indictment was enough in a previous iteration and now isn't enough to actually get him out of Congress. Another interesting thought that I saw on social media that I wanted to share here was a thought from Jordan Cheriton of Status Coup News, uh, who's been a guest on our program before. He says, maybe we can put the tweet up on screen. Yeah, there it is. If the FBI can bring down the hammer in four months on George Santos, where the charges against the hundreds of Congress members guilty of insider trading over the span of decades. And I, I actually saw uh, the Babylon Bee, the satirical site, almost expressed a similar uh, sentiment uh, with a headline that was like, uh, you know, George Santos uh, arrested, uh, or whatever the action is that's been taken, technically, um, 534 other members of Congress <laughs> still at large. Uh, you know, and I think there's a grain of truth to this, mm -hmm. that there's so much attention to George Santos and his alleged crimes, maybe because they're flashy or mm -hmm. more obvious, so they're dramatic, the, the whole, you know, the... The stealing from the sick dog, the, yes. that kind of Was thing. Was he on Hannah Montana was one that I hadn't heard of before. What? <laughs> it was he secretly a drag artist, like all of these kinds of things. So it gets a lot of attention from the media, and maybe it's possible that affects how much attention it gets from law enforcement relative to other matters. Yeah. But it's absolutely true that m political figures, members of Congress, et cetera, have been 
serially guilty of using information they have in both legal and non-legal ways to enrich themselves personally. They own stocks in the kinds of companies they're constructing regulations for. They're lobbied to do it in such a way that benefits firms they have a financial interest in. Um, several members of Congress were actually caught finding out about the COVID pandemic behind closed doors right. earlier than anyone else, using that to make uh, certain purchases, sell, right. buy, etc. And there are, you know, occasionally efforts by some members of Congress to force on the entire body um, stock trading prohibitions. And that has been fought tooth and nail against by Nancy Pelosi and others who want to continue using their position to enrich themselves. Absolutely. I am as entertained by George Santos's fabricated history as most people, but it should really not be missed that what he, the, the crimes that he has now been indicted for pale in comparison to what is a day's work uh, out on Capitol Hill. There is some good news on that front. Um, just uh, earlier this month, AOC and Matt Gates joined forces to push for a ban on congressional stock trading. Hopefully, there will be some real bipartisan movement on this. It is the difficult one for members of either party to really duck. There's not a very strong argument for why they should be continued to cast bets on the fate of the American people. Nancy Pelosi kind of slow-rolled this kind of legislation when she was in the leadership position. There was the Stop Pelosi Act, which was—the uh, Pelosi Act, rather, which was uh, this gorgeous acronym uh, that I could never recall off the top of my head, but which was geared to do or to do, do, uh, toward doing exactly that. And Pelosi, because of her um, leadership position was able to change the voting schedule and such that it never actually went anywhere. It'll be interesting to see if whether or not in the Republican House this kind of legislation has more legs on it, especially since it has um, bipartisan backing in AOC and Matt Gates. Wanted to play another reaction from Representative uh, Richie Torres, who's a New York Democrat who has been particularly vocal on social media about holding George Santos <laughs> accountable. Let's play that. Congressman Torres, your thoughts on this? Because, as you said, Kevin McCarthy is desperate for these votes. He serves at the narrowest majority, but even though it's the same majority, you know, that Speaker Pelosi had, he ain't Speaker Pelosi. He doesn't know how to run his caucus like she ran hers. What is the likelihood in your mind that because he needs this vote, he will let him stay in office while, in theory, he is on trial? Look, I, I would never bet on the integrity of the Republican Party, which has a high tolerance for scandal and corruption and criminality. And George Santos, to me, is not an accident. He's an outgrowth of a broken Republican Party whose standard bearer is Donald Trump, who on the same day was found liable for sexual assault. So the modern Republican Party is an endless stream of scandal, and I have no confidence in the ability of the Republican Party to hold George Santos accountable at all. Richard. But again, <laughs> there are so many members of Congress not in both parties not being held accountable for far more, maybe, because I don't want to underplay this, but weightier uh, matters than what George Santos is accused of. Um, I also don't know that George Santos is really—this is a product of— a Trumpist ideology, uh, yeah, I don't except in the way that. that maybe he's guilty of a kind of grift that is common in very uh, right-wing uh, circles, although is also common in just all political circles. Um, yeah. Probably the, gri the grift—there's also a grift in believing that you like your side is 
is pure in some way. What was that? No, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't have stood for that. What does that mean? If Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi needed a vote, she wasn't. She was not forced that person out of office. No way. Yeah. I don't believe it. If we're talking about grift, do not believe Richie it. Torres has come under a lot of criticism for how deeply invested he is in promoting the interest of a, a conservative right-wing Israeli political regime, um, sometimes at the expense of his own constituents' political interests. Some might argue he was recently mad at leftists that were tweeting about some other unrelated press freedom case, I think, for an Israeli journalist—sorry, uh, a Palestinian journalist, saying, well, how much do you—how much do you speak up for Israel? I mean, he, he just—he's one of these kind of Hakeem Treffery styles. Israel is, is the sixth borough of uh, New York at the same time that I believe he has the highest child poverty rate of any district in any part of the United States of America. So there's a lot of reasons to question Richie Torres's um, focus here. Uh, look, again, it's not to downplay what's going on with um, George Santos, but there are much bigger fish to fry. There's a reason why there's a such thing called uh, the Pelosi Act. You know, it's because the people like Nancy Pelosi, who's being put on a pedestal here, have been exemplary, really strong examples of exactly the kind of corruption that people are trying to get after. It stands for preventing elected leaders from owning securities and investments. I'll never get over how there great that go. is. There you go. Got it. Got it in there. <laughs> well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, investigative reporter Jimmy Tobias will be with us to break down how the media botched the Wuhan origin raccoon dog story. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, they are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.